We've been trying out the clicker this morning. That microphone's quite loud. And um, it doesn't really work from back here. So we'll see how it goes. I might run back and forward, or I might just give it to Ian, and then he can operate it from the back. Um, I'll move this. Great, so uh, we're thinking this afternoon about the topic of justification. Because last week we thought about the idea of adoption. Jesus came to bring adoption. This week we're thinking about Jesus came to bring justification. Um, and it's just, it's an amazing topic, I think. And it's one that the Reformation was centred on. And that's like when the church was just like one like lump of people and they all believed one set of things until a chap called Martin Luther, uh, who was, he was trying to be the best monk possible. He was like, if he, um, imagine, if he had a cat allergy, I'm not saying he did, but if he had a cat allergy, um, he would have a cat in his pocket. Every time he thought something wrong, he would bring it out and sniff it. You know, he was really trying to kind of purge himself of all his sins. He was doing anything he could to, um, to try and become the absolute like Mr. Monk. He wanted Mr. Monk of the Year Award, if possible. Um, and then through studying the Bible, he discovered that that wasn't what the Bible message was. He discovered it isn't about being the best you can be. It's about understanding that Jesus is the best ever. So justification is all about that. And then at that point, the Roman Catholic Church and Martin Luther separated and the Reformation happened, and it's a bit more complicated than this, but the kind of the other side of the church formed that, that was based on justification by faith alone, not anything else. And justification, it's a big word. Uh, Jai did an interest spot on it maybe 18 months ago in his Big Words Ending Shun series, um, and there are probably some notes knocking around from that still. Um, but it's a two-stage process, justification. So the first stage is in justification... Uh, a person, like you or I, is taken. A person who, in their life, has done things wrong. They've got sins. They've disobeyed God. They've uh, not lived in God's way. So stage one of justification is uh, their sins are taken from them. So that's stage one. That's not all justification is. Because if, in justification, if it was just your sins were removed from you, you would be neutral before God. You've not done anything wrong because you've taken all the bad things away, but you've not got anything good in your account. It's like you're in massive debt and your debt's been cleared, but you've got no cash. So there's kind of, you're in the stage of being just neutral. A little bit like Adam was when he was created. He'd done nothing wrong and he'd done nothing right. So he was in a kind of neutral position. So that's the first bit of justification. Our sins are removed from us. And the second bit is, so God kind of, if you imagine that this is like, this is my sins, this jacket thing. And so the first part is, God takes away my sin, he takes it off, and he removes it. The Bible says he removes it as far as the east is from the west, so he takes it and he throws it away, and he gets rid of it. The second part of justification is where God takes the righteousness that Jesus has, and he puts it on us, like a new coat like something brand new that's perfect and amazing. There's a little diagram in one of the books that I was reading. It had me, I was a circle. There were lots of minus signs in it. So the first bit, all the minuses disappeared, so I was an empty circle. Then, my empty circle, 
had all the plus signs from Jesus put into it. So I went from being in, like, in a hopeless place to being neutral. That's half of justification. The second half is go from a, a neutral place to a place where God is pleased when he looks at me and he thinks that I am as pure as Jesus. Which is an amazing thing. When you realise that it's actually all about Jesus, it's not about me, not about what I can do, it suddenly takes a massive weight off your shoulders. And Martin Luther describes it as, you know, he, he suddenly realised that he didn't have to like sniff cats anymore. He didn't have to beat himself when he sinned. He realised that Jesus had done it all for him. So the other analogy we often get is the idea of you're in a courtroom and when God comes back to judge the earth, it's like he'll pronounce one of two verdicts on everyone. Either he'll say, away from me, I never knew you, so I don't know you and I'm not going to know you in eternity. Or, well done, good and faithful servant, come in, is the idea. And when you're justified, you'll stand in that courtroom and you'll stand on the side where God now says, well done, good and faithful servant. If we're justified, we have a, a legal right standing before God. So that's basically what justification is about. I thought we'd have a think through it and, and see if we can get there. So I'll make this work. Right. So, this is my first one. So when, when you're in a hole, how would you finish that phrase? When you're in a hole, what do people say? That is one option. That's a good, a good try. What other things do people say? When you're in a hole, dot, dot, dot. Stop digging. Stop digging. That's what I was thinking of. When you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, can't really think of a very appropriate example, but you may have... Uh, no, I'll, I'll not even try, because it'll not come out very well. So when you're in a hole, if you've got yourself in a bit of a mess, don't try and get yourself out of that mess by doing the same thing that got you into it. Does that make sense? So don't use whatever got you into the mess, as a means of getting out of it. Um, so before we get to why I've written that there, I think that we now pretty much live in Maslow's world. I've mentioned a chap called Maslow before, and, and I don't like Maslow. He's got a triangle. He came up with this triangle theory, and it's kind of got layers. It's a layered triangle. I think there are five different bits on it, and it's called the hierarchy of needs. So at the bottom... It's kind of basic needs, food, water, shelter, clothing, things like that. And it gradually builds up to the top one, which is called self-actualization. Um, and that means being like the best person that you can be, you know, like making you, your own way in life, you fulfilling all your um, achievements and everything that you want to do. That's the top section of the triangle. There are, I think there are five sections in Maslow's triangle. So the first bit is like basic needs, then there's kind of... Um, social ones, so you've got like family, friends, um, then work, and then there's a self-esteem, which is kind of getting a better job than you had before, you feel happy about yourself because you've done well. But basically, in Maslow's world, it's all about, if I put a bit more effort in, or stand on somebody else, I'll get to the next level, and if I need to get, say, to the family level, I'll get, my, I'll get myself a wife or a husband, and then we can have a family, but then if I need to get to the next level, if I want... I don't necessarily need those to carry me up to the next level, so I might try and find something else that will help me. It always seems a little bit, I'll do what I want to do to make me feel good. And if it actually hurts somebody else on the way, it's making me feel good, so it doesn't actually matter. And it always, it's, a, it's a bit scary, I think. And I think sometimes that's the kind of the world we live in. 
you kind of look in, people talk about the work in the city, in the financial sector, is kind of dog-eat-dog, somebody will happily take somebody else's job or belittle somebody else or tell lies about them to get a better job. And then I did a quick Google search, which is uh, what we do when we don't know something. We just bung it into Google and find out the exact answer. I kind of just Googled self-help books, see what uh, options there are out there, and there are hundreds and hundreds of self-help books. There was um, The Independent had a top ten, and the, the first one was something like things you don't know about sex. That was the first one. Then there was how to win friends and influence people um, and all sorts of other ones in there. But all about how you can get a book so that you can go into any high street bookshop like Waterstones, um, go to the self-help section, pick up a book, think, I need to get better at dealing with anger. So you go and buy the anger self-help book, you don't like it and you break its spine or something like that. Um, but you read it and you work out how you can get better at dealing with these things. But ultimately that's you, who is in a fix, trying to help yourself out of a fix. It's a bit like you're in a hole and you're trying to use the same thing to get out of it. And I think the kind of one of these uh, the funny examples almost is New Year's resolutions. New Year's Eve tomorrow, New Year's Day the day after, because that's how, that's how that, that works. And, um, and people make New Year's resolutions. They think, you know, this, it's been Christmas, I've eaten you know, 14 kilos of turkey and, and six tonne of chocolate, so I've put a bit of weight on quite a bit, if you've eaten that much. And, um, and you think, well, I'll, you know, this new year, for all of this new year, I'm going to run uh, a mile a mile a day for all the days in, in January, then two miles in February, three in March, and you kind of work through, and then in, in December, I'll be running 12 miles a day. I'll be the fittest person, you know, at least on my street, probably in the town. And by you know, January the 1st, a mile feels like a really long way. You think, stuff this. I'm not going to bother with that because that's you know, really difficult. I mean, by the end of January, you're going to run like 30-odd miles and you'll feel terrible for it because uh, running doesn't help anything, I believe. Or the cat who lives with us just goes out and runs eight or nine miles and she's got a car. I don't see why if you've got a car, you don't need to run. That's my theory. But, you know, New Year's resolutions get broken. Apparently, the majority of New Year's resolutions are broken by January the 6th, I think the date is. So most New Year's resolutions that are made are broken really quickly because we think we've got a problem and we can sort it out and it falls through normally because we've given ourselves massive expectations and very little willpower or too much turkey to get there but ultimately I think the human default setting if you could like look at the a human programmed up so if you like when you turn on your computer it says Windows is starting you know that's the, the how it goes normally if you boot up a human being our default setting is one of sin and self-sufficiency I think that's one option, is that we're, you know, we, we don't want to do things that we know we should. But, you know, it's like you have the option, I'm going to start a diet tomorrow, so I'll eat a piece of cake today. Which is stupid, you know. I'm going to start a diet tomorrow, but I might as well, like, binge today on food because it's my last free day before a diet. Well, if you don't, then your diet will be more effective. But we all do things we know we kind of shouldn't do. And that works, uh, and that, like, gets bigger as we go along. So... People do things, so like you, they may think, oh, I know it's not good for me to go and say buy clothes from that shop or food from that shop because they're not very ethical, but if I do, I've got a few more quid in my pocket to spend on something else. So we buy things from places that maybe don't, uh, don't kind of do the best for other people or for other things in society. And I think the other side of it is we're naturally self-sufficient. We think I can deal with my problems, and particularly British people, 
I can deal with my problems and I'm not going to tell anybody else what my problems are because that's not British. We're gonna, I'm going to have the stiffest upper lip that is possible. That would be New Year's resolution for a natural British person. Nobody is going to realise I have a problem. You know, I can sort it out. It doesn't matter who I am. And they think, well, you can sort it out for yourself. But I think there's kind of the flip side of that is those people that have, have found that that doesn't work, their default could sometimes be, I'm in an absolute mess. And do you know why? It's so-and-so over there's fault. And they like to blame other people for the fact that they're in a fix. But ultimately, it comes down to me trying to pull my socks up. We've uh, been in some chatting to, to someone we know, um, talking, and he's saying, like, I'm in an absolute terrible situation at the minute. I've lost this, that, and the other. I've, I've just got absolutely nothing left. I used to have, you know, I used to have a brand new car. I used to have a business that was working. It's like, I've got nothing, no home, and anything. And his answer to that is, but if I can just get this or that, then I know I'll be able to sort my problem out and I'll get back to where I used to be all better. And it's this idea that you've come to the end of yourself or he thinks he's come to the end of himself, but actually he hasn't because he thinks he's going to pull his socks up and he thinks that's going to sort out all his problems as he, uh, as he moves on and tries to sort himself out. And I think the problem is for, for us today, we live in that kind of society but then we bring that, we bring all that baggage with us when we hear the gospel. So for somebody who's not a Christian and they hear the gospel, the idea that, that God loves you, that Jesus died for you and he'll take your sin away if you just believe in him. Some people who, who aren't Christians may think, well, well, I'm not good enough for God, so I don't want his gospel when I know that this is a problem in my life. So I'm going to go sort out X, Y, Z, then I'll come to the gospel because I'll sort it out and then I'll let Jesus take away my other sins that I haven't dealt with, which won't be very many. There's probably two that I can think of. Um, but ultimately, if you're not a Christian and you think I'll sort out X, Y, Z, then he'll want me. You're wrong. Because ultimately, we'll never be good enough for God. All we'll do is keep digging and digging and digging and find ourselves in a bigger mess than we started in. But then, I think it works for the Christian as well. So if you're a Christian, sometimes you might think, God forgave me of all my sins, but I've messed up and I've done something wrong, or I've done something wrong again, or I've done it wrong, you know, 14 times now. So I must go and do X, Y, Z, whatever that is, whether it's I'll, I'll give more to, I don't know, spreading the gospel in, in, in Azerbaijan or wherever it is, I'll, I'll give something to that, I'll... I'll make sure I'm at every prayer meeting this month and I'll get to growth group in the week and I'll you know, we start piling up these things of things that we'll do that'll make God happy and then he'll definitely kind of forgive us and he'll like us a bit more. Or the other side of it is sometimes God has just stood there waiting for me to fail so that he can beat me with a massive stick because I've sinned. Well basically when Ian read with that of Romans four, the precursor to that is Romans one, two and three. And in all of Romans 1, 2 and 3, Paul's big idea is you are in a massive hole and you can't get out of it on your own. So when we try and think, actually I can sort out all my problems whether we're Christians or not, Paul here in Romans says, you've got it wrong. You can't solve all your problems. What you need is you need somebody who's outside of the hole, who's bigger than the hole, to reach down, pick you up, pull you out and help you then 
sort your life out. If you want, let Jesus pull your socks up. But don't try and do it on your own. Right, let's click on. So you read to us about a chap called Abraham. Abraham, um, like, uh, like Martin Luther wanted to be kind of Mr. Monk in his day, Abraham is Mr. Jew. He is like the Jew, the best Jew. He was the first Jew. He was the one that all the Jewish people looked to and thought he, he was tremendous. They look back and they talk about the, like the fathers or the patriarchs, like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Abraham, he was just like the best chap uh, for the Jews to look back to. But how was Abraham justified? He went through and he read the passage to us about Abraham and, his, and how he was justified. And he talks like, was he, was he justified by circumcision, which was a, the practice that the Jews uh, still do today on a Jewish boy on the eighth day, he'll be circumcised? Um, or, you know, or was it something else that justified Abraham? Well, actually... It's a bit scary, but Abraham was circumcised as an adult. He wasn't a Jew. He was in a pagan land. He lived like he had nothing to do with God. He lived in a pagan place. He was a really wealthy chap. Um, and one, one day God spoke to him and like, told him, like, get up, pack up your tent. You're off, mate. And the reason Abraham was justified, Paul tells us in Romans, is that Abraham believed God and it was credited as righteousness, righteousness to him. So it wasn't anything to do with circumcision. It wasn't anything to do with Abraham thinking, I better sort myself out and then God will be pleased with me. Abraham was justified because he believed what God told him to do. And ultimately the circumcision came as a sign that he had been justified by faith. It wasn't, the actual circumcision didn't justify him at all. But then when the Jews look back and they think, he was the best Jew that has ever lived. He was an amazing Jew. They look back and they see somebody who wasn't circumcised on the eighth day, he hadn't fulfilled all the Jewish law that they were meant to have done, because he couldn't, because he was older than that when, he was, when, he was, uh, when God spoke to him. So ultimately, Paul says here in Romans, that even Abraham, who was the best Jew that ever lived, the one they all look back to and think, we are children of Abraham, we are Abraham's seed, the blessing of Abraham is going to come to us. Paul says, this chap Abraham, he had nothing good to offer to God. God came and spoke to him and made Abraham right. Abraham had nothing of his own to justify himself. But the thing that did lead to his justification was the fact that he had faith and that he believed God. Great. Thank you. So the thing that justified Abraham, the thing that can justify us today, is faith. So I've got two quick questions to look at and then we'll go on to the last slide. So the question is, what is it? And then, why did God choose faith over anything else? Like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, any of those things. Why is it God chose faith rather than something else to be justified by? So what is it to start with? Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is uh, trusting in what you hope for and believing in what you can't see. So that's part of it. It's trusting in what you hope for and believing in what you can't see. Somebody said to me once that faith 
is what you put in a chair when you sit in it. Yeah? Because when you, you just get a chair and you sit in it, you don't think, well, you may do sometimes. You kind of just plunk yourself down, and for some of us that's more scary than others. We, um, we don't look at the chair and give it like a wiggle and a test and like stamp on it a few times thinking, is it strong enough to take my weight if I sit on it? I mean, if I jump on it, will it give? We just sit in it. You know, we put our faith in the chair as soon as we sit in it. We hope, and are pretty certain, because we've done it before maybe, that it will hold our weight this time. So faith is what you put in a chair when you sit in it. And the other thing I think faith is, is it's accepting actually that everything is beyond your control, but that nothing is beyond God's control. If we have faith in God, we can accept that everything is beyond our control. Things may happen that we have no control over. Sometimes we get a little glimpse of control, maybe in our family, in our home, and then it can be snatched away as soon as you know, you're told off for doing the wrong thing. But nothing is beyond God's control. So that's the first thing. So that's, I think, what faith is. Faith is an absolute trust and belief in something or someone. But Romans tells us that we're justified by our faith. But why is it that God chooses faith over and against something like peace? Why doesn't God say you'll be justified by being peaceful to the people that you meet? Now, peace, you know, it's a great thing. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So making peace between people is a godly act, it's a godly attribute, it's something that Jesus wants us to go out and do. But we're not justified by being a peacemaker. We're not justified by showing love. You know, the Bible says God is love. But we're not justified by showing love to somebody else. We're not even justified by being joyful in God and and who he is and what he's done. We're justified by faith. I'd never thought of that question until I was doing some reading this weekend. And I thought, that's, that's a good question. Why? Why is that? But I think the answer is that faith is the exact opposite of self-reliance. If human default is, I can sort myself out. If I've got a problem, I can just try and try and try and eventually I will get there. The exact opposite of that is saying, I haven't got you know, any chance to sort this out. I've not got a hope of sorting this out on my own. What I need is somebody who's been there before, who's done it, and that can help me through it. I've got to be willing to say, I can't do this. I need somebody else's help. And that's where faith comes in. We have to say, look, if we want the help that Jesus offers, we have to say, I'm willing to say that I can't do this. I can't achieve this on my own. But I know a man who can. And we put our faith in Jesus, and he'll help us to get through whatever the issue is. And justification is an issue where Christianity stands or falls. That's kind of the first issue. If you believe that Jesus can save you and you put your faith and your trust in him, then he'll, you'll become a Christian through that. So for us, if we want to become a Christian, if we want our sins forgiven, if we want to know Jesus into eternity, we have to put our faith in him. He is the only safe place for us to put our faith. So I've written up there so you can be sure what I've said. But I thought, why is it that it's Jesus that God wants us to put our faith in? Why is it not, you know, not God the Father or not the Holy Spirit? Why is it that he says we're justified by faith in Jesus? I think the answer is quite straightforward and sometimes difficult to swallow because of that. 
ultimately the answer is our faith has to be in Jesus because Jesus is the one who has goodness and purity and righteousness and peace with God and joy and he has all those in abundance. He doesn't kind of lack a single bit of any of them. He's got all of those perfect, wonderful attributes. The Bible says that Jesus is the truth, that he is the good shepherd. He says all these wonderful things. Jesus doesn't have the tiniest black mark or blemish against his name, whereas we do. We kind of look at ourselves and we think, there are things that I've done that I really don't want anyone else to find out about. If somebody found out about that, it would be a terrible thing, particularly depending on who found it out. But Jesus hasn't got the tiniest blemish against his name. I thought then, when I was looking through this, I thought, how do we know, you know, how do we know that Jesus, say, is the good shepherd? Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the best shepherd, not because he was good at looking after sheep, but because he was willing to lay down his life for his sheep. I think the Bible's got a great way of just automatically kind of casting humility on people because you come to the Bible and the Bible calls us things like dirt when we were looking at the parables. We were one of the, you know, the types of dirt that there were. We were one of the lost coins in one of the other ones. We were you know, the, you know, the ragged son who'd been off and wasted all his father's money. He got no shoes. He stank of pig dung. You know, this is what the Bible describes us. And it describes us as sheep. And sheep are essentially stupid animals. And this is how the Bible describes us. We're people who, without a leader, haven't really got a lot of hope. But the good shepherd is the one who laid down his life for his sheep. The good shepherd saw that the sheep were all in trouble. People like you and me, with all the black marks that we have against our name, he was willing to say, do you know what? Even though I've got purity, goodness, righteousness, joy, peace with God, all these things in abundance, I will take every little speck of sin, of black mark that you have against your name, I'll be taken to the cross, and on the cross... I will take all your sin, all the death that that deserves, all the curse that you would experience outside of God's grace and all the judgment that God is going to pour out on those people whose sins aren't forgiven. I will take that on the cross. And as Jesus dies on the cross, he says, you know, he says it's finished. He says that sin is dealt with. Death itself is defeated as Jesus rises from the grave. And he gives to those people who put their faith and their trust in him, he gives them new life, they'll live now and in eternity with God. He gives them peace with God. There's, God now looks at us if we trust in Jesus and he, and he sees people like you and me and he doesn't see any of the black marks that we have. He doesn't see any of the sins that we've done today or that we will do tomorrow. He sees people who are pure and righteous and good. Which is amazing. That Jesus says to you, look, you've done some things wrong and if you want rid of them, put your faith in me Believe me, give your life to me and I will deal with all the wrong things that you have ever done and will ever do. And in return, all you're going to get is amazing gifts from me. And before I uh, give you my final conclusions, something that we were discussing on my course that I go to kind of once a month was, was this question. For a Christian, when God looks at you, and, for example, you beat up your granny, okay? You beat, cause it's, it's a horrible thing to be beating up your granny. It's sinful and wicked and awful. As a Christian, what does God 
Like, what does God's face towards you look like when you sin? What does God's face towards you look like when you beat up your granny, for instance? Does he then, is he automatically then really disappointed with you? Does he, does he turn his face away and, and not look at you? Well, we were discussing this, and I found this quite, quite interesting. I've never really thought about it so much. But the answer came back. The face of God towards us never changes. If we are people who are justified in Jesus, God's face never changes. He looks at us and he loves us. But as we sin, inside he feels compassion and pity for the person who isn't living out their life as fully as God would like them to. But his love for us never changes. His face never turns away. We're never like, out of God's presence. We never, we never become people kind of soiled by sin um, as we would outside of Jesus. Which I thought, that's amazing, isn't it? Actually, if I, even when I continue to sin, even though my sins have been forgiven, I do something wrong, God doesn't turn his face away from me and is disappointed with me. He looks at me and he thinks, there he is. He's my child and he's a bit of an idiot at times but I still really love him and I'm working in his life to change him so that he won't do this in the future. Um, But I should probably say that I've never beaten up my granny. She wouldn't let me. So let me just think a couple of final thoughts. Ultimately, when we think of justification, that Jesus takes away all our wrongdoing and gives us all his goodness and purity and righteousness and joy and peace, the obvious, answer, the obvious kind of conclusion, the response to that is to like, take a step back from our daily lives and normal lives. Just look at that and say, wow, is it not amazing that Jesus would do that for you and for me? To spend some time just thinking, just this is amazing. Jesus is willing to do that for me. And I know what I'm like. I'm an idiot. But Jesus would come from glory, would die on the cross, would rise again so that he can know me for eternity so if you're a Christian here today and if you tend towards um, when I was thinking of this I was kind of thinking of Mary and Martha if you tend towards the, the natural independency and, and hyperactivity of you know, cleaning the house all the time like, like is in the story of Mary and Martha my challenge to you is actually physically go and make time Get, like, cut, some, like, cut a few pages out of your diary if you need to. Scrap whatever's there, um, unless it's my birthday. And then and make some time to peacefully, just calmly reflect on the fact that you can't do anything to earn God's favour. God loves you for who you are, for what he's going to make you, and, for who, and for, like, ultimately for who you will be in the new creation. And that that is never going to run out. You're never going to do anything that mars it or takes it away or, or will help you, will even let you lose it. God is going to keep you forever. So that's the first one. If you tend towards being really independent and, and uh, manic in the things that you do, don't think that you know, making every prayer meeting or making every growth group or making every, every church service is going to do anything for you in God's eyes. They're things that God likes, but they're not things that are going to justify you. But the other, the other end of the spectrum is if you're someone who, who kind of tends to complacency or, or sloth, you know, you'd quite happily think, well, Jesus has justified me. I'll just sit down and bask in that forever. And, um, and while you're at it, somebody can fetch me a pie and I'll just sit here and, and really enjoy this pie to the glory of God and to, and, and to Jesus. And I'll, I'll just really enjoy that. Ultimately, Jesus didn't die and rise again and ascend into glory to justify us so that we could sit still 
some people say that sometimes you'll meet a church where they're full of the chosen frozen. They're people who come to church but do naff all about it. You know, they, they'll come to church and they might go to kind of prayer meetings or something like that, but they're not excited about the fact that they've been saved from something to something else. So if you're more on that end of the spectrum, I would challenge you to make a conscious effort to rejoice and to share the fact that you have been justified by faith in Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, I'll tell you the bad news first is that you're not good enough for God and that you'll never get yourself there. But the good news is that you only need Jesus. He'll take away all your sin if you put your faith in him and he'll make you someone you'll never make yourself. So I'll pray and then we'll sing our final song. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for his perfect life, his his perfect death, his glorious resurrection and his ascension into glory. Back to you. Father, we thank you that uh, our sins can be taken away. Father, we thank you for the amazing thing that is just to be able to say that our sins can be dealt with. Father, we thank you that you uh, look down on us and you can love us and you can show your grace to us if we put our faith in you. Father, we're sorry for the, uh, the amount that we are so self-reliant and and yeah, independent. Father, we thank you that you want us to depend on you. Father, we thank you that you have made possible uh, for us something that is impossible for us to do on our own. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to, as Christians to rejoice in it and to meditate on the fact that you want to give us this gift and you want us not to try and earn it. And Father, if there are people who don't know you, Father, I pray that you would really show Jesus to these people and they would, they would see him, they would put their faith in him and they would have their sins forgiven by him. Father, we thank you for the message of justification by faith. Father, we thank you that we can't earn it and that you long to justify sinners. Father, thank you that that is the amazing truth in the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to rejoice in that ourselves and to enjoy standing back, looking at the gospel, and just saying, wow, that is what we want to be part of. So, Father, I pray you would help us to, yeah, to really make, the, make a bit of time to reflect and rejoice in these things that we can't achieve on our own, that we can only achieve through Jesus. Amen. Amen. And we'll finish with See amid the winter snow, which is number 200 and something. 12. I'm reliably informed. 212. And then I've got a couple of notices for you.